let's stand for the reading of scripture. We're going to be in Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and one of mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationships with one another, having the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you, Micah. I feel like we could just read that again and call it a day. It's a pretty amazing passage that we're going to be going over today. Do you mind just... Bow in your head with me one more time before we pray, before we start. God, I ask, Psalm 119 verse 18 says, open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. I pray that you would speak to us through this text, especially for the sake of the world right now and the great need of those around us. Speak to us, Father so that we may be humble, so that we may serve, so that we may demonstrate you to this world. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I've heard it said that the cardinal sin of our culture is the suppression of self-expression. The ability to express yourself in any way you see fit has become nothing short of a spiritual exercise these days. Author and speaker Christian De La Huerta states in his article, The Power of Self-Expression, it will probably be, be on the screen, he says, the journey of self-discovery is the most important journey we can take. It is the inner journey and heroic one. The dragons to be slain are our own fears and insecurities and outgrown belief systems. Challenges to be overcome include family, social, and cultural conditioning. No more stuffing ourselves into smaller and obsolete containers. No more hiding our light under a bushel. It is high time to come out from whichever closet as the uniquely magnificent beings that we are. If we don't bring that unique human potential to fruition, who will? Then he ends with this one question. 
the question then becomes, who are you? Now, this indeed is a very important question for us. That's, I don't know, if this generation, we're asked like, who am I? And that, that notion of self-discovery is, is really important. I would agree with a lot of what he says, but equally important is to ask, how do we actually go about finding the answer to that question, who are we? And that is where I think I would part ways from Christian. Social and cultural psychologists, Hee-jung Kim and Deborah Ko, confirmed that self-expression is one of the most highly regarded and venerated values in Western society. They say due to the near deification of the individual in our society. That's why it's become like a spiritual exercise. Interestingly, um, among others, these same psychologists note that although in the West, self-expression is seen as, the, as a key to um, happiness and actualization, many Asians and Easterners see it simply as egoism. Many countries, um, many countries suppress what we would call self-expression due to concern about disturbing existing social relationships. I put, you know, suppress, they would suppress that. I put that in quotations because they don't actually feel like it's suppression like we do. Um, there's a ton of interesting studies actually that I was getting into the weeds this week um, that show that actually if you, if you force some, uh, some Asians and some Middle Easterns, Easterners to express themselves more vocally or in other ways, it actually impairs for them higher cognitive functioning and this sense of interpersonal uh, connection, which is exactly the opposite for us here, right? If we were uh, to suppress self-expression, we would feel like, man, I'm not connecting to people and, and my, I feel like my creati creativity is kind of low, right? It's very, very interesting. Contrary to what Christian de la Huerta seems to say is a universal reality, a journey to self-discovery would be considered odd, a waste of time, even selfish in many cultures around the world. Now, at the heart of this difference is really the difference between an individualistic and a collectivist culture. And neither extreme is good. Right? Silence and suppression in collectivist honor-shame cultures um, sometimes does more harm to the individual than good. Likewise, in our culture, we're seeing the tearing of the fabric of our society due to the idolatry of self-expression. Both have negative effects, not only on the individual, but society at large. But Jesus weaves a third way between the two to bring healing to us as individuals and as a community. We are individuals who are to be authentic, but we are also a community of people who should strive for unity. And to that end, especially here, to that end, the way forward in this ruggedly, rigidly, individualistic Western society, the way forward is humility. Humility. This is where we're going today. 
Humility is at the core of our joy and unity in Christ. Humility is at the core of our joy and unity in Christ. So um, as Dan mentioned, we're continuing in our series through the book of Philippians simply entitled Joy. It's, it's sort of a handbook on human flourishing, if you will. And it's no surprise that we experience the same theme again as we get to the first two verses today. Let's read those again. Verse one and two of chapter two. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded. Have the same love, being one in spirit and one of mind. Here's our first point to today. for today. Unity is the way to joy. Unity is the way to joy. So Paul starts with this if-then statement. It can kind of seem misleading at first because when you have an if-then statement, it kind of is open-ended, like, I don't know, like, I, I'm doubting in the if part. Maybe, maybe that's not there, but if-then. And, and Paul's not actually trying to express any doubt here. He's not doubting they've experienced this encouragement in Christ. He isn't doubting they've experienced the comfort and the love of Jesus. He isn't doubting they've experienced the fellowship of the Spirit. In a nutshell, he isn't doubting that they truly experienced this life-changing salvation in Jesus. But he uses this if-then statement for rhetorical value. It kind of packs more of a punch. You know, it makes you really look inside and ask, have I experienced these things? But really what he's saying is sense. Since you have experienced all these, then be like-minded. Have the same love, being one in spirit and one of mind. Essentially, he's saying, since you've experienced this love and tenderness in Christ, be like-minded, or for us today, be unified. And there's no reason you shouldn't be. You, you've, you've already experienced everything that you need in Jesus to give to others so that we can be unified, right? Now, real quick aside. Everything moving forward is going to be based off this, this visceral, personal experience of our relationship. Like, we could stop right now and just, this could be a whole sermon in itself. Like, are we experiencing, this is, this is what everything, like, there's no hope for us to be unified as a body if we're not literally, viscerally experiencing this in our relationship with Jesus. And I just want to say real quick, we all are on this journey growing in Christ, develop. It's, it's all a journey, and there's disconnects. We're all in this process of not only being made whole, but being made, uh, not only, sorry, not only being made, I, I lost my punch, not only being made holy, but being made whole. That's what it means to mature in Jesus. And I just want to say real quick, if you're experiencing, you know, a cognitive disconnect, I, I like what Dan says, the whole, what we're, what we're what we're trying to do is to get our theology in our biology. And I would just say, if you're experiencing some disconnect at some point, come talk to us, come talk to Dan, come talk to Shua. We, the neighbors is really good at habituating ourselves to the way of Jesus so that we become 
whole beings, experiencing Jesus in totality. To move, move back into our text. But before Paul gets to this, this call to be unified, he inserts this pastoral appeal. He says, make my joy complete. He could have jumped right into it. He said, since you're you're experiencing these things, then be unified. But he inserts something, make my joy complete. And I love this. Fill me with joy, he says. What we see here is that unity is what brought Paul great joy. Unity brought Paul great joy. And I submit to you that the same is true for us today. Maybe you've experienced that in a relationship with a spouse, your, your spouse, not a spouse, hopefully your spouse. Um, <laughs> I need a drink of water. <laughs> Maybe you've experienced that with um, friends. You know what I mean? That, that unity, that you're just jiving, you're connecting. That's, that's life-giving, right? That's joy-giving, and I would say, that there's probably nothing more stronger and life-giving than a unified church. See, it saddens me to think that the enemy's schemes have made such inroads to the church that the thought of unity sometimes causes cynicism in me, even despair. Like every well-meaning person has their opinions, right? We all have opinions on politics, on uh, science, on justice, on race relations, on gender roles. But somehow, these issues have been elevated, I would say, by the enemy's design to be on par with the gospel. But what if, what if we were all so encouraged from our relationship with Jesus so at peace in his arms of love, so content in our fellowship with the Holy Spirit, so tenderized and filled with compassion that these things were so secondary and being like-minded in our love for Jesus and his life-giving message, sharing that to the world was like all that we cared about. Could you imagine that for a moment? Could you imagine what it would be like if you could have a conversation with someone who you knew held the opposite political views as you, and you never sensed that anxiety welling up in your heart at all? Could you imagine if we could have that conversation over over COVID and vaccines and all of that stuff, and and your, your blood pressure never rose at all? Could you imagine that? What if we could all laugh at like funny jokes again? Like not like harmful, mean ones, you know what I mean? But like real like comedy, like real funny comedy. What if we could just like laugh again at that? Wouldn't that be like joyful? What if we could do these things because they didn't really add a sense of joy or comfort to our lives? These things were so secondary. And being unified at what is important, being like-minded as a church for Jesus and his message to the world was like all that we cared about. I would say 
we'd probably be a pretty joyful people, wouldn't we? I want us to remember real quick, in contrast to what we're seeing in the world today, unity is not uniformity. True unity is not uniformity. See, our society is splitting into more tribes and factions imaginable, and why? Because I think they have the wrong definition of unity. Our culture believes that in order to be unified, you must be uniform. And this is a satanic lie that is fueling all the vitriol and the cancel, cancel culture that we are experiencing. If you think outside the box, if you concede a point from the other side, if you don't look, think, and speak like we do, then you are out. And this cancel culture, it's not bringing lightness and life and joy, it's bringing fear, fear that you would dare say the wrong thing. In contrast, we are being called to a joy-giving unity, one that is made possible because it's based on a completely different definition and a completely different focus one, as Paul says, based on the same love, not the same hatred towards someone or something. We're being called to a unity made possible by the Spirit and by the cross of Jesus Christ. And this unity brings us great joy. But if it comes through the cross of Jesus, then we can't expect it's gonna be easy for us either, right? We can't assume that. This leads us to our next point. Unity is the way, or sorry, humility is the way to unity. Humility is the way to unity. This is in verse three, should be on the screen. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourself, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Now, we're not gonna to spend too much time on this point because Paul's gonna to continue to develop this and illustrate this in the life of Christ, so we're gonna come back to this. But for now, I just want us to remember that humility is the way to unity, and this is, this is so important for us to press on to this journey because unity brings joy, but that doesn't mean it's gonna be easy. So, Little lighthearted story for you. I was at a uh, monastery not too long ago. It's not really a monastery. It's like a, a mission. You know, we have a ton of them in California. So I was at a, a, a mission. And um, the whole idea of living this kind of monastic life is, is, you know, to live humbly, to live simply. The Franciscan way of life had produced this beautiful environment of just, it was, it was so beautiful and tranquil. It was so awesome. And it helped that they had these amazing gardens. They had like, oh man, there was like hummingbirds that were like, there was like, I never seen so many hummingbirds in my life, just like all territorial, fighting each other and you're just feasting your eyes off. It was beautiful. The accommodations though, they're humble, right? It's like a, it's like a little room. You got like a sink, you got like a 
twin bed, you know, a small little bed, and you got your desk, like everything you need to live the humble life of a monk. So I was just soaking it up. In the morning, I would just spend my mornings in the, in the rose gardens, just reading my Bible, just praying, and then in the afternoon, I'd come in and sit at my desk and just study in my humble little room. Everything was great in this little humble life until few days go by, and I'm sitting at my desk, it's late at night, and I realize I need to take a shower like now. <laughs> Have you ever had a moment like that where you're like, I, I need to, like, I'll spare you the details, right? I'll spare you the details. But like, I need to, like, now. Like, I, I'm like trying to finish a paragraph I'm on, I'm like, no, I, I can't even do it. I can't even concentrate right now. Like, I am just Oh, I'm disgusting. So I go in the middle of the night, I go to uh, take a shower in this communal showers, right? And, and I go in, it's cold, it's the night, and I, I, I turn the faucet on what I think would be hot because I don't actually see a hot or cold sign on it. So I'm a little, I'm, I'm a little panicked right now in the middle of the night, thinking like, God, let this be hot. And I turn it on. And the water comes out and it's freezing in the middle of the night. And, th and then, I, I, you know, I wait there for like a minute, two minutes, three minutes, like hoping, please let there be some hot water in this thing. Nothing. It was freezing. And that's when I realized humility is not always easy. First world problems, right? Humility is not, it, the idea of it is great until you have to jump in a freezing cold shower in the middle of the night. Good story though, it, took, it literally took about five minutes, but there was hot water that came on, so I just want to say that. Um, but, but the moral, like the, the same is true for us, right? Humility is not easy. Paul says, in humility, value others above yourself, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of Others. Humility is not easy, but it is the road to unity. And Paul reminds us that humility is also the nature of Christ. And hence, for us as Christians, this is our nature. He goes on to illustrate this in the life of Jesus. That's our next point. Humility is the nature of Christ. Oh, I had, I had Christ in parentheses, and then, yeah, because I thought I was cool. But um, you get the idea. It's the nature of both. Um, humility is the nature of Christianity. Humility is the nature of Christ. And we're going to read verses 5 through 8. We're going to see this in the ultimate example, Jesus. He says in verse 5, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross." Now we come to a, a high point in Christian teaching. And this is literally one, one of the, the pinnacles of the Bible here. Here we see the true nature of our God. And as we get into this, I, I want you to understand, Paul's trying to describe um, the mystery 
of the incarnation and the Trinity in, in human vocabulary, right? You cannot never, ever perfectly, perfectly do that. And that's why he uses some difficult words here. And we're gonna, dis- we're gonna get in the weeds just a little bit. I like to do this, so uh, hopefully you'll have a fun time. Um, but overall, the, the point of this passage is very clear. Paul says unequivocally, Jesus is God, the God who humbled himself by becoming man and furthermore embraced the humblest of humility by enduring humiliation on the cross as the lowest of men. Now, one of the words that sometimes causes confusion in this passage is the word that NIV translates. If you have an NIV in front of you, it, it will say the very nature of God. And there might be a little like letter there at this Bible study for a moment. Um, you, can, you can follow that and see it. It will probably say the form of God if, if you see that. Some translations just say that, the form of God. They're translating this word morphe, very nature. Morphe is form. And uh, the word form, if you have a translation other than the NIV, is actually a good translation uh, as long as you understand what it meant 2,000 years ago and not in our time, right? Because when you would say Jesus is the form of God, what does that, what does that like conjure up in your mind? Like he's like, hey, he's kind of like, he looked like God. He kind of had like, Maybe he looked like God, he had the outline of God, but, he, but not necessarily that he was God, right? That's kind of what it means in our culture. But I don't think that's what Paul actually meant when he wrote this word. Do any of you remember taking philosophy, like maybe in your undergrad or college, like philosophy 101 or intro to philosophy or something like that? Um, so I was once trying to be a philosophy major, keyword trying there. Um, And I remember learning about the theory of the forms. Anyone show hands? Anyone know this? Theory of the forms. Okay. I won't bore you with um, hundreds, thousands of years, really, of historical and and philosophical thought on this word morphe. But in contrast to how we use it today in Greek philosophy during the time of Plato and Aristotle and, and, um, sorry, Plato, yeah, Plato and Aristotle and beyond, um, the form was act, the morphe was actually the transcendent, changeless, eternal essence of an object. You can look this up if you want. I'm not spewing nonsense here. So, for example, the reason we see all these physical um, and visible manifestations of beauty and love on this earth through relationships and through other things is is because the true essence for them, the true essence of, of beauty and love exists as an eternal reality. So Plato and Aristotle called that eternal nature of a thing, which is the basis for its physical manifestation in time and place, the form, the morphe. To quote uh, everyone's most well-known, respected, and scholarly resource, Wikipedia, they say this. These forms are the essences of various objects. They are that without which a thing would not be the kind of thing it is. Which is why I think the NIV translates this word dead on the very nature. Jesus is in the very nature God. 
But get this, even if I didn't convince you with that, the whole weight of this argument disappears if Paul is not specifically calling Jesus God here. I was once talking to my Jehovah's Witness friends um, who claim that Jesus is not the one true God, but a created being, a lesser deity, if you will. And they knocked on my door, and so I took them to this passage. And look how the entire point Paul is trying to make falls flat if Paul is not directly calling Jesus God on here. If Paul is not calling Jesus God here, his argument is this. Jesus, who is only in the external form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage because it wasn't his to take advantage of. He wasn't equal to God. Therefore, be humble like Jesus because he didn't take advantage of something that wasn't his to take advantage of. Wow, that's a powerful argument, huh? I'm being, I'm being uh, cynical there. No, what does he say, though? What does he say? Jesus, who is God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. In even easier terms, Jesus, who was God, did not consider the prerogative of his status as something to cling to. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking on the nature of a servant. Literally, rather, he emptied himself or he poured himself out. God is the pouring himself out type of God, and he demonstrated that when he took the nature of a servant or slave. This is the very same word Paul used of himself in chapter 1, verse 1. Now, we need to understand something real quick. Jesus didn't cease to become God when he became man. He didn't swap natures, but he took the nature of a servant as God. A better way to put it would be to say that God expressed what being God was all about when he became a human, dare I say it, slave. F.F. Bruce wrote, Slavery pointed to the extreme deprivation of one's rights, even those relating, relating to one's own life and person. When Jesus emptied himself, he did not exchange the nature or form of God for that of a slave. Instead, he displayed the nature or form of God in the nature or form of a slave, thereby showing clearly not only what his character was like, but also what it meant to be. God is not a God who takes full advantage of his privileges and prerogatives. But when the great need of us became known, he served our interests and thus became a servant. He became a servant by being made in human likeness. Now again, far from conveying that he wasn't actually human, that word likeness might convey to you, far from conveying that, it's actually the perfect word to use. It says that Jesus was in the likeness of humans in, in the way that he, he was human, but he also wasn't. He was God, and furthermore, he didn't have 
a sinful nature. The reason uh, that word morphe is not used here, it's used of, of him being in, in the, the morphe of God and also of a servant, is because divinity and servanthood are part of his eternal nature. Humanity was something he took on later. That was not part of him, of his eternal nature. There's a lot of technical stuff here. The Bible's pretty awesome, but it says, and being found in appearance as man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. The the word found is like, it's like surprise. Like God appeared as a man? Like if he hadn't already humbled himself enough as God, he humbled himself even more by enduring the humiliation of the cross as a man. Did you know that humility was scorned in the ancient Greco-Roman world? Humility was not a virtue, but it was actually a sign of weakness. Ancient Greco-Roman culture despised admonitions towards humility. The only humility they talked about was the kind they were going to give to somebody else. Do you know why we even consider, why humility is even considered a virtue today? Because of right here. Because of right here. Paul even uses a a form of the word humility in verse 3 that never even existed before the time of Christ. Humility as a virtue was literally non-existent before the coming of Jesus. But Jesus saw our need, and he humbled himself to the extent of the cross. Apart from being excruciating, the cross was the most humiliating way to die. Roman citizens were not even allowed to be crucified. It was primarily reserved for slaves. And here is the humility of Christ. Humility hardly seems fitting a word to use. This is the true nature of our God. And this is the nature of the faith we practice. Moving on to our last point. Humility is the way of glory. Humility is the way of glory. Verses 9 through 11. Therefore, God exalted him Uh, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, this latter portion is a quote from Isaiah 45, 23, where God says, by myself I have sworn a word that will not be revoked before me, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And this is in the same chapter where, by the way, God says, I am the Lord, there is no other. Beside me, there is no God. And this verse is being applied to who? Jesus. Now track with me. These verses are not stating that Jesus is being exalted or rewarded because He humbled himself. Now, we know that's true for us as believers. Jesus gave a promise. Whoever humbles themselves will be exalted. But there's actually something deeper taking place here. Try to to follow with me real quick. Humility isn't just the way 
to glory. Humility is our glory. Jesus isn't just being rewarded for his humility. God is vindicating that the humility of Jesus expressed who God actually was. Through humility, Jesus expressed his divinity. And God vindicated this reality by raising Jesus from the dead and revealing him to be who he always was. Lord of all to whom every knee rightfully should bow in heaven and earth and under earth. These verses vindicate Jesus by showing that his humble, self-emptying, death by crucifixion only goes to prove that much more that he is God, equal to the Father, the one who had every right and privilege but didn't use it to his advantage. Humility isn't just the way to glory. Humility is our glory. And rather than losing his identity when he humbled himself, his full identity was actually manifest and will be to the whole world. Let's come full circle now. Let's land the plane. Let's bring this home. Who are you? Christian de la Huerta asks. Who are you? Many like him would argue that you'll never know unless you give um, full expression to every right, every thought, every desire, every inclination. What we are seeing in our society now is almost like a return to the time before Jesus. Like humility is no longer a virtue in, um, in our social media feeds, you know, in, in our politics, in our public discourse. In fact, humility is seen as dangerous or stifling to self-expression. But the problem with full-sense self-expression is that many, many don't know who they truly are. They think they're expressing themselves when really they're just expressing what the surrounding culture has encultured them to be. Only Jesus knows who we truly are. He knows us better than ourselves because he made us. And he says that you and I are a child of an amazingly good father. A child is free. A child is authentic. When I think of my, my daughter, she just has no care in the world. She just expresses herself authentically and freely. But they're also humble. They're also reliant. She looks to me to pick her up. As a child, our job is to love, trust, and humbly follow what the Father says, knowing he has the best in mind for us. And this is what he says. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Friends, when we humble ourselves as Christians and deny 
our own rights and privileges like Jesus. We are not ceasing to become ourselves. We're not squelching our identity or self-expression. We are actually manifesting who we truly are. We're Christians. We're servants of God for the sake of others' good. And this is why Jesus said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me in the gospel will save it. Friends, this is the true nature of Christianity. We lay down our lives to find them. Humility is not a suppression of ourselves. It is an expression of our truest selves. We're Christians, followers of Christ, here to emulate his way to a world that desperately, desperately needs us. As we um, end and just go into a time of communion, I just want to leave you with a question question that you can be thinking about this week. How can you habituate yourself to humility? I was thinking about it last night. How can you, what what are some tangible things you can do to habituate yourself to your truest self? Maybe, maybe your first step is, is with your relationship with God. As he humbled himself for us, Maybe God is calling you to humble yourself before him, to stop asserting your way. Maybe he's calling you to repent of that thing and to serve him, to defer to what he says in his word because he knows what's best for you. Maybe it's a relationship with someone else. It could be a spouse could be a friend, it could be a boyfriend, could be a girlfriend, could be family, it could be an enemy. Jesus calls us to love them and serve them like he did for us by sacrificing our agendas, our ambitions, our desires, even our rights to better serve them and demonstrate the love of Christ to them. Remember, 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 the core of our joy and our unity with Christ as individuals and as a church is found in humility, is the true nature of God, and it is our nature as Christians. Would you bow your head with me in prayer?